Well, it is a joy and a privilege to be with you again. Um, please uh, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 in particular. Uh, and before we get started, uh, let's pray. Our Father, we uh, praise you this morning because you are holy, holy, holy. You are the God who is and who was and who is to come. Father, we worship you. We thank you that you have sent your son Jesus who is our Lord and Savior. God, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that we might know more of this salvation, that we might know how to live, that you might give us hope um, in our time of need. And we pray that you would be with us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so as we uh, turn this morning to the book of Revelation, um, I can only imagine what some of you are thinking. Uh, Revelation is one of those books that I think uh, people either tend to just sort of stay away from it or other people gravitate to it and uh, almost obsess over that book. Uh, for myself, uh, it's, it's not been a book that from early in my Christian faith I was just focused on, I would read it, and there's just a lot of things I think, huh, I wonder what that means, and then I would <laughs> go on from there, and uh, I teach a Sunday school class at uh, my church, Jefferson Park Baptist, and uh, by popular demand, there we finished the book of Galatians, and lots of people were asking and begging, can we please study Revelation, and I thought, you know, I um, really should dig in and study that book more deeply myself, and so yes, we will study Revelation together, and um, it, has, it has been a really um, profitable, encouraging uh, time for me, and so I want to share with you some of the things that uh, I think God has helped me to see in this book, um, but right from the start, I just want to acknowledge that uh, this, this book is uh, difficult to understand. And, and one of the reasons for that is it, is it is a very unfamiliar genre to us. I mean, this is apocalyptic literature. And, um, you know, the, the way we understand any writing is one of the things that's important is to kind of understand the genre that it's written in. Um, one funny example of this, maybe you've heard of, um, so this was back in 1938. There was a dramatic radio broadcast, a dramatic reading of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. And apparently there were some number of people who just tuned in and they hear on the radio this description of this alien invasion from Mars and they think this is like real news. And they flee from their homes, they swamp the police office. I mean, the New York Times front page the next day uh, addresses this you know, quite comical reaction because, you know, they were interpreting, you know, a fictional story as if this were, you know, real news headlines. Um, but misunderstanding genre can, you know, lead to misinterpretation of uh, nonfiction things as well, right? I mean, you, you could read a poem and um, a man can speak of, of a woman and talk about how her face shines like the sun and we just know what that means. We understand the kind of joy and life and beauty. But then, you know, you could read a newspaper headline that says, woman's face shines like the sun. And, and we would think, 
what is it? Is there some kind of strange medical condition? What, what is taking place? And, and so the point is, you know, genre is important. And we come to Revelation and it's a genre we're just not very familiar with. And I wish there was some shortcut way to just understand and be comfortable with apocalyptic genre, but I don't think there is. Uh, but I do know this, the best thing that you can do and we can do is simply read and reread and study the whole Bible. And the more that you read and reread Revelation, but not just Revelation, but you read the whole Bible, I think the more you will gradually find that God's Word is becoming more clear. Uh, the book of Revelation is full of Old Testament allusions. I, I don't think there's a single direct quotation from the Old Testament, but in the 404 verses of Revelation, there are hundreds of allusions to passages in the Old Testament. So just the more you know the Old Testament, the more you read things in Revelation, and the symbolism will make more sense, and you'll start to see, oh, I, I see a connection here. Um, and I just want to encourage you to, to study the book because the very first verse of the book says the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, it is the, the very name of the book is Revelation. It is not a cryptic code. You know, it is not an impossibly hard to understand thing. The, the main truths in this revelation are truths that God has revealed that we can know, that we can be encouraged by, um, and in fact, truths that we will be blessed to understand. Because in verse 3, right at the beginning of the book, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Right, so it is a book that has been given to us as God's people to bless us. And it's also a book that is given so that we would keep what is written in it. Um, you know, this is originally written to these seven churches in Asia Minor, um, probably in the 90s AD. And during this time in just the history of the church and of the world, the, the emperor of Rome was a guy named Domitian. And it was under his reign that emperor worship became compulsory upon the threat of death. So this time in Rome, I mean, it was possible that soldiers would come along and they would demand that you throw a pinch of incense in the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. And of course, pious Christians refused to do that because Jesus is Lord. And they will not acknowledge or worship any other as Lord and God. Um, and so, there were some, not a large percentage, but there were some Christians that were martyred and put to death uh, because of their faith in Christ, their unwillingness to offer incense and declare the emperor's Lord. And Rome viewed that as, you know, these, these Christians are, you know, they refused. This is dangerous. You know, they are seditious. And so some were put to death. And, and Christians in general, they had to live with just the, the knowledge that that could happen. Imagine getting up every morning and just knowing it's possible that the government is going to come knock on my door and my allegiance to Christ will lead to my eventual execution. And so that's just the life 
that Christians are living with, and that is the situation that you know, John is given this revelation to then speak into. And I think keeping that in mind is really helpful because I think it helps us not go down the track of just reading this book as sort of this cryptic code that we're supposed to get out our charts and we're just trying to sort of figure out all the details as if that were the main point. When the main point is to speak into the lives of Christians who are facing intense persecution, who are asking if Jesus is really on the throne, why all this suffering? Why does life feel so chaotic? Why are things so hard? And, and I think what we'll find is one of the main messages of this book is that, yes, there will be suffering. And there will be all kinds of things. God is reigning, and yet these things will happen. And yet, these things, as they get worse, that should not lead you as a Christian to start to wonder and second-guess and think, well, maybe God really isn't in control. You know, maybe my hope is in vain. Rather, this book shows us that even as things seem so chaotic, then at the darkest hour, Christ will return. And God will come and establish His kingdom and win the victory. And so the point is, in the face of the you know, most severe persecution and tribulation, take heart, persevere. Um, God has already won in Christ, and Christ is returning. Um, and so I think as we focus on that, it helps you know, keep things in view. and helps us see what it means to keep the words of the prophecy of this book. It means to hold fast to Christ and to hope in Him. Uh, so, as, as I said already, uh, I'd like to focus our attention this morning uh, specifically on chapters 4 and 5. And uh, these chapters really provide the, the backdrop against which everything else in the book uh, plays out. Uh, so, in, in chapter 1, John has this vision of the Son of Man, and it's Jesus, and he is walking in the midst of these seven lampstands, and the lampstands represent the seven churches that these are seven churches in Asia Minor that John is writing to. And then in chapters two and three, Jesus has a personal message for each of these churches. So he speaks into their earthly situation and calls some to repentance, and he calls you know all to perseverance and um, offers a warning for those who don't repent, but then promises. Uh, you know, glorious promises about eternal life for those who believe and overcome. Uh, but then as we come to chapter 4, John is summoned to kind of look up and to go through this open door in heaven and see God on His throne. Uh, so, so please follow along as I read uh, Revelation chapter 4. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice in this chapter is the fact that God is on his throne. Uh, so John has just, as we talked about, he's been you know, focusing on this earthly situation and Jesus speaking into that and he's summoned and he goes up into heaven and he looks and there is God on the throne. And then as you read the description of God on the throne and these living creatures and all these other things, there are two Old Testament passages that really should be in the back of our mind. Uh, the first is Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah talks about in the year that King Uzziah died, how he was, you know, he saw the Lord and he's in the temple and there's these four, you know, there, there's the seraphs flying around and they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the other Old Testament passage we should have in mind is Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel has this vision of God on the throne, and there's these four living creatures, and you know it's very similar in much of the language, and he talks about the rainbow and the precious stones and all the rest. And just the, the simple observation of that connection to start with is this. You think of the days of Isaiah, right? Uzziah had just died. He had been a strong king for 50-some years, and uh, Israel had been prosperous, and now the king is dead. There's this political instability and uncertainty. And then you've got the days of uh, Ezekiel, right? And Israel has been disobedient, and they've been dragged off to exile, right? And, and Ezekiel's off in exile, and you know, just the political chaos all around him. And now you come to John and you have this wicked, oppressive Roman government. And yet, just as it was in the days of Isaiah, just as it was in the days of Ezekiel, and just as it is in the days of John, you go up to heaven and everything is the same. God is just reigning as He always has, as He always will, on His throne. Uh, nothing has changed there. 
Uh, and so that should encourage us, right? That um, when, whether earthly kingdoms rise or fall, whatever political instability we face, uh, God is always the one on the throne, reigning forever. Now, a second thing I want you to notice is behold the beauty of God. Uh, <clears throat> John writes at one, in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I mean, he, he describes these precious stones and this emer- and this rainbow and you know it's hard to even picture what exactly does this look like but it's beautiful and you think back to Isaiah and his you know, he sees God and you read his vision you know he describes about the seraphs and these other things he doesn't really say anything about he didn't even try to explain God and then you come to Ezekiel and Ezekiel talks about the four living creatures, and then he tries to describe what he sees on the throne, and he, he's just like, well, it's the sort of like the likeness of fire and brightness, and there's this rainbow, and then he says at the end, and this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And clearly, he has no words to express it. I mean, he sees something so beautiful, he's just trying to find something to say what it's sort of kind of like. And he can't do it. And then we come to John, and it's like he's just picking the most beautiful things he can think of to try to come up with the language to express the beauty of God on his throne. And so, you know, we should read this, and it should fill our hearts with a longing and an anticipation, looking forward to the day when we will be able to see and behold, God on His throne. Uh, as David writes in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. And that is the hope we have in Christ. Uh, thirdly, behold the sheer majesty of this king. Uh, John goes on, right after you know, attempting to describe the beauty of God, he says in verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So this king is a king who is so majestic that around his throne you've got 24 other thrones. And on these thrones sit elders dressed in white, holy, you know, some sort of kings, and they are wearing golden crowns representing their authority. And all of this pointing to the greater and supreme authority of God Himself. Um, These elders are probably angelic beings, uh, but they also possibly represent the church of all ages in some way. You know, there's 24 of them. We could think, well, there's the 12 tribes of Israel. There's the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You know, this is the Old Testament, New Testament church together, perhaps. Um, But the clear point um, beyond all of that is the fact that you go to verse 10, 
and all of these other kings, these other elders who sit on thrones before God, they cast their crowns in worship before Him. God is such a majestic King that all other kings bow in worship to Him. And then God's majesty is also clear as we come to verses 5 and 6. And it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, the seven spirits of God that comes up earlier in the book of Revelation, that seems to be a way of describing the fullness of the Spirit. Right? So it's just saying that God on the throne, that He is surrounded by His Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit. But then there's also mention of the thunder and lightning. And this speaks to God's awesome and majestic power. Uh, we think of uh, earlier in the Bible in the, uh, when the Israel comes to Mount Sinai. Right? And God descends on the mountain in fire and there's the earthquake and there's lightning and there's thunder. And when God speaks, I mean, the people are so afraid, they beg Moses, you talk to God and tell us what He says, but don't let us have to listen to Him lest we die. Or then in Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk describes when God came. He says, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, and His glory filled the skies, and the earth was full of His praise. He had rays flashing from His hand, like lightning from His hand, and there His power was hidden. Uh, or one other place, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Job 26. And Job describes all these awesome works of God in creating the world and reigning over the world and, and just the things that we can't even begin to understand that God has made. And then at the end, Job says this, Behold, these are but the mere edges of His ways. And how small a whisper we hear of Him. But the thunder of His power, who can understand? Just a beautiful way to describe the almighty, infinite power of God. And yet, this thunderous power does not make God a God who is chaotic or out of control. Because then you look, and around the throne, in verse 6, it says, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So before this thunderously powerful God, there is this sea of glass-like crystal, perfectly serene, peaceful, beautiful. Um, and, and one thing to understand is, you know, in Jewish thought, the sea is dangerous. The sea is chaotic. In fact, that's why the beast comes from the sea. That's why later in the book of Revelation, it talks about the new earth where there's no sea. Because the sea is dangerous. The sea is chaotic. No one can tame the sea. right? The wicked have no rest because they are like the troubled sea. And yet here before the throne of God, there is a sea like crystal. Completely serene. Completely subdued. And I think one of the things this speaks to is God's sovereignty by which He subdues all things to the counsel of His will. 
This is a God in absolute control of all. And friends, what a comfort that should be to us. To think that the Almighty God is not a chaotic God, but a God we can go to. And as David describes in the Psalms, be like a weaned child with his mother before. Just at peace in the presence of this mighty God who uses that might for our protection and preservation. And then finally, as we think about the majesty of God in this passage, there's the description of the four living creatures. And it says, picking up at the second half of verse 6, around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So possibly speaking to their you know, full knowledge of God. Um, the first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And so what might be the significance of these different um, kinds of there are different faces. Um, well, one, the lion, the ox, man, and eagle are all the chief of their kind, right? The lion is the chief among the wild beasts, the ox, the chief among domestic animals, the man is chief over all creation, and the eagle is chief of the sky. And perhaps also you could see that, you know, lion points to royalty, an ox to strength, the man to spirituality, and an eagle to swiftness. Um, but whatever the case, these very ministers before God, they are awesome. They are powerful beings. Um, and it also says, continuing on, it says, and the four living creatures, each of them, this is verse 8, with six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within. And they have these six wings. You go back to Isaiah and you remember the the. Seraphs have six wings and you know, with two they fly, but with two they cover their faces. Because even these seraphs, these mighty burning ones, as the word means, they cannot look directly on the glory of God because of the sheer brightness of His glory. And then they, with two wings they're covering their feet because they have feet of clay. Because as holy and awesome as they, see, as they seem to us, they are creatures. And only God is the Creator. And then you see here that these four living creatures, day and night, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Right? These beings that seem so holy and you know, magnificent to us, yet they are creatures like we are. And before God, all they can say day and night forever and ever is how holy God is, that He alone is the I am that I am. He alone is the one who is and was and is forever because He alone is eternal. Uh, he is the one who is in a category all by Himself, the one with whom no one can compare. And so we see the majestic, one-of-a-kind holiness of God. Now, the fourth thing I want you to notice in this chapter 4 of Revelation is what God is then praised for. So look at verses 9-11. through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. 
they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God is praised as the Creator. Um, The heavenly host... They're acknowledging a number of things. One, that it was God and God alone who made all things. And it was by His will that they existed and were created. In other words, these things did not exist before. God simply spoke and brought all creation into existence out of nothing. And then they are acknowledging that because God is the Creator, because God made all things, sustains all things, therefore God owns all things. And God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And they are acknowledging that God is worthy of all praise, that God is their creator, and therefore they owe their allegiance fully to God. And friends, this should remind us of two things. First, we should look at the beauty of creation and give God glory for it. I mean, if the heavenly host, after thousands of years, still has not gotten over the fact of just this sheer majesty and how awesome creation is, I mean, how much more should we, in our you know, less than 100 years of life, um, never just be accustomed? I mean, we should get up every morning and just look at the beauty of creation and worship God and know that He made all these things. Um, And just meditate on that. We should never cease to be in awe of what God has done in creation. And then secondly, uh, this should remind us of how wrong things are in the world. You know, the more we remember that this is God's creation, that God owns it, that God deserves all the glory and praise and obedience You know, it should remind us every day something is seriously wrong. That God is not receiving all the glory He deserves. It should remind us that something is wrong, that this world is not good fully. You know, the the, the situation that there is death and there is evil in this world, you know, almost every religion besides Christianity somehow traces that to say, well, that's just how God made it. Maybe that's because God is chaotic. Maybe that's because God is not fully good. But we as Christians understand from Scripture that no, God is good and He made the world good, but something happened in history that changed all that. That there was a fall. And if we don't understand that, then we can never really understand what the Bible is all about because the whole Bible is about God's plan and His purpose to restore creation and us to His original intention. And to the way things are supposed to be. And that transitions beautifully into Revelation chapter 5. Because in this chapter, we begin to think about God's purpose, God's plan. So picking up in verse 1, John says, Then, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed 
with seven seals. So you have this scroll, and it is you know, representing, I mean, it's in the hand of God the King. And of course you think, if a king is holding a scroll, this is his decree, this is his plan, his purpose. And then the scroll is sealed. You know, they'd use wax seals to seal it up. And sometimes the king would stamp with his signet ring in that seal. And then John says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And so the scroll is held up and the angel says, who is worthy? And there is no one. No one in heaven. No one on earth. No one under the earth. No Old Testament saint like Abraham, Moses, or Elijah, nor any angel. Not even these four living creatures. No one is worthy to take and open the scroll. And then John begins to weep loudly. Because whatever is in that scroll, it's good. And John longs to see see these things come to pass. And he is so afraid that they're not going to happen. Now we ask the question, well, so what is in the scroll? And... I would suggest to you as you sort of read the whole book and you put all the pieces together, um, the scroll represents God's decree to set all things right on the earth. The scroll represents the fact that even before there was a fall, God had a purpose and a plan to set all things right again. God is going to bring judgment upon His enemies justice to the earth. God is going to bring salvation for His people. And God is going to bring about a new creation or a new Eden. Um, That is His purpose. That is the good decree that God has planned, and yet there is no one able to bring this to pass. And John is weeping. But then, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He hears about this conquering lion. And he's from the tribe of Judah because Judah, if you remember back when the... um, Isaac, or sorry, Jacob is blessing his sons and he comes to Judah and he describes Judah as a lion's whelp and he talks about how the scepter will not depart from Judah. So there's going to be this conquering king, a lion-like king from Judah. And then you come to David who's descended from Judah and Isaiah 11 says how there's going to be this rod and this shoot that is going to come as the seed of David to reign. And so now the angel is telling John that This Messiah, this Christ, this King who would be descended from Judah, descended from David, He has come and He's conquered. The lion has conquered. And then, John turns and looks. And verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So he hears about this conquering lion. He turns and looks. And surprisingly, it's a lamb. 
And this conquering lion is a lamb that's standing as though it had been slain. A lamb, a lamb which literally it says had its throat cut. A sacrificial lamb. But a sacrificial lamb that didn't stay dead. A sacrificial lamb that is now standing because it has come back to life. And of course, you know, this is speaking of Christ. Of Jesus. The One who has conquered in the most surprising of ways. Jesus who is the Lion of Judah. Who has conquered through His death and resurrection. Right? Jesus who, as, as the hymn writer says, um, He died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. And this lamb, he, he, John says, he was standing among the elders. Again, possibly the elders represent the church in some way. And this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So in other words, he has the seven eyes, which represent seven spirits, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he has seven horns, which represent power and authority, completeness. Right? Just as Jesus resurrects and he says, now all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And this lamb then proceeds in verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who is seated on the throne. He goes up to God Himself on the throne and who has this scroll in the right hand of His power and the Lamb takes the scroll. And then, all of the heavenly host turn from worshiping God and they turn to the Lamb and worship Him. Listen as I read the rest of this chapter. And when, verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And so friends, the first thing I want you to see in this passage is is that this so clearly testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. I mean, you see the whole heavenly host turn in the very presence of God the Father to the Lamb and worship Him with the same worship with which they were just worshiping God Himself. In fact, if you go through verses, chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, there are these five hymns. 
So we saw two in chapter 4, and then there's three more in chapter 5. And in each hymn, the size of the choir grows. So back in chapter 4, verse 8, you have the four living creatures praising God as holy. Then in chapter 4, verse 11, you have the 24 elders praising God as creator. And now here in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, you have both the four uh, living creatures and the 24 elders praising the Lamb as Redeemer. Uh, In fact, this is even called, verse 9, and they sang a new song. It's like they've been praising God for the work of creation all these years and now they turn and they begin to sing a new song about redemption and you see the work of creation is here and now you have the work of redemption being praised and then you come to the fourth um, the fourth hymn in chapter 5 verse 12 and we have myriads and thousands of thousands of angels Praising the Lamb as worthy. Right? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then, and, and by the way, that's exactly the same things that God the Father was just praised for. And then you come to the fifth hymn in chapter 5, verse 13. And now the size of the choir, it is all creation. Right? It says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And so, Jesus is God. I mean, this is a great pattern. Next time you have a Jehovah's Witness or somebody come to your door and they try to say Jesus isn't really God, I mean, take them here and show them this. And this, friends, is why we confess that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So Jesus is God. Now, a second thing I want you to see here is that the cross and resurrection of Jesus are framed as the center and defining moment of history. Right? Jesus is the one. God has this scroll which represents right, His decree, His plan, His purpose for how to resolve all of history. No one can unlock the scroll except for and until Jesus comes, dies on the cross, and is raised. And then the elders and the four living creatures say in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So Jesus' cross and resurrection is the very center, it is the key to all of history. Um, and Jesus is uniquely qualified. It is only Him. Uh, And and this should encourage us because it shows us that because of Christ's death and resurrection, the resolution of all things decreed in the scroll is secured. It will happen. I mean, it's already been decided. Uh, The war has already been won. 
Um, you know, sometimes people use the analogy of in World War II, right? You have uh, D-Day, when the victory was decided, that was the decisive turning point, but the war didn't sort of officially end until VE Day, right? In the same way, the cross and resurrection, Jesus has secured salvation for his people. And we are merely awaiting the day when he returns to consummate that victory and to bring all things to pass. And so as we face you know, suffering and tribulation, don't lose heart. The war has already been won. And then a third thing to notice here. Jesus ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Right? We come to look at verses 9 and 10, and it says, By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And that is significant because when you go to the Old Testament, this language of a kingdom and priests, where that first shows up is actually in the Exodus. And when Israel comes before Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, and God says, you know, I have carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself, and you will be my own special people, and I will make, you will be to me a kingdom and priests. And now we come to Revelation, and John is taking that exact same phrase, and he is saying that now these people from every tribe and language and people and nation, they are being made a kingdom and priests to God. And so what this shows us is that the church is the true Israel. That in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Uh, that, that when, you know, it's not like God has just started some promises and Israel failed and now he's just forgotten them. No, he is fulfilling all of these things in and through Christ in the church, which includes all of Israel who believes. But then those like us who are Gentiles are now grafted in and we become the participants and share in the promises of God uh, to Israel that he is now fulfilling through Christ and will fulfill in all history. So, as we conclude, uh, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to ask the question, so, so how does the story end? Right? And I, and I want to challenge you to keep reading through Revelation and you'll see how it kind of unfolds uh, because right after Jesus as the Lamb takes the scroll, well then chapter 6 begins where he begins to open, break the seals. And I think a good way to understand the rest of the book is that Jesus breaks the seals and he unrolls the scroll and brings about the end of history. Uh, and so you have the seven seals, which sort of are this preparatory function, right? These are the necessary signs and judgments that must take place according to God's sovereign plan in order for the end of history to come about. Then there are these seven trumpets, and these plagues come upon the earth, and yet they're described as trumpets because in God's grace, these, these plagues that fall, they're warnings. And God is summoning people to repent and to turn away from sin, to wake up and realize the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that God is going to make all things right, and therefore they should turn. And then after that, you come to the seven bowls where God's wrath is poured out, when justice is satisfied. And then finally you get to the end of the book and you come to the new creation. 
this new Jerusalem comes down and it's a city in the shape of a cube. And you think, well, what does that mean? And well, back in the temple, the Holy of Holies was also a cube. And the picture is that now the whole world has become the temple of God. And God's presence fills the earth. And there's the river of life and the tree of life. And people are dwelling in the presence of God. And, and so what does all this mean for us? And I just want to give you three final things. Uh, the first is this. Uh, this book is a call to repentance for us. I mean, you cannot read this book and, not, and come away just, if you take it seriously and just feel, you know, content in sin. I mean, this book warns us that God will judge sin. Do not take it lightly. Full justice will be poured out on the earth, right? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, know that God will judge our sin. And unless you come to Christ, you will face God's wrath. But secondly, this book calls us to persevere. You know, it says if you're in Christ, just keep going. Don't lose heart. The more intense even sufferings become, the day is coming when we will see the Lord face to face. Don't lose heart. Persevere. And then third, and finally, I think these chapters, especially chapter 5, challenges us to recognize the mission that God has given us. Our highest calling in life is to worship God and bring Him glory. We are summoned to join with these choirs that we have been hearing about, to join in in giving Him that praise and glory. And then secondly, we are summoned to beckon others to join us in worshiping Him as well. To beckon them to come join the choir because Christ has died not just for Israel, but to ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so let's think about how we can participate in this mission by being faithful witnesses to others, how we can support the cause of missions throughout the world, um, and how we can live our lives in a way that will just bear witness to who God is in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you have sent Christ, that he has, in fact, uh, secured redemption. Uh, and that he is bringing to pass the, the good end of history which you have decreed. God, we thank you for the hope this gives us. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful, um, to live our lives in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.